good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much uh, for being here. I'm Damien Barr. I'm your host uh, for this afternoon. Hopefully, the tent won't get blown away. Um, I've been told they've reinforced the, uh, the barrels of water around the edges, so anyway, we'll be fine. It's lovely to be back in Wigtown for the 20th year, uh, and it's great to be back in Scotland. The Scottishness started last night when I got on the Caledonian sleeper um, and ordered some haggis and had an Aran malt with Kirsty Wark, which is possibly about the most Scottish thing that could happen. Um, and then somebody turned around and asked me about the Rangers score, to which I had not a clue, which is like the story of my life. Anyway, it's wonderful to be here. Um, and thank you for making time, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Thank you. So we were just already getting carried away talking about books there, um, and this is your life in books, so let's go back to the beginning. You've talked in interviews before about sitting under a table when you were a wee girl reading a book. Do you remember what that was? Oh, it would have been a famous five book. I, was, I read all of Enid Blyton's books when I was uh, a wee girl, so the, the under the table thing was at my fifth birthday party, uh, which had been organised by my mum and dad, and all my wee pals were there. They were all playing ring a ring of roses or whatever it was we played and I was hiding under the table reading my book with my mum desperately trying to cajole me to come out uh, and failing so uh, <laughs> the but, Enid Blyton was that good uh, yeah I mean Enid Blyton I suppose was the the author that first uh, showed me what it was like to get lost in stories and, and gave me that love of, of reading. Um, I'd moved on to other things, obviously, when I was probably not much older than that, but I'll always remember the, the magic of the Famous Five in particular uh, and The Secret Seven and all of these things. And I still remember that, you know, what it used to be like just to have a new book and lose yourself in it and be oblivious to everything else that was happening. So if, if it was up to me, I'd still spend most of my days hiding under a table reading a book. <laughs> Tightly just now, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so those, those, those early books, were they, were they given to you? Did you? Was it pocket money that you earned? Did you go out and yeah. buy them or were they library books? What? Both, actually. So I used to go to the library with my mum or dad uh, most weekends. Uh, there was a, still is a, a library in Irvine, which was the town uh, closest to where I grew up. So I would be a regular in the library and I used to love uh, going to the library. One of the things I really love as well as reading books is being surrounded by books. It's, it's just something lovely and calming about that. So I enjoyed being in the library, but I used to spend pocket money on books and nag my mum and dad whenever we were in. They used to, I still do probably, but my memory then is going for the shop into the supermarket and uh -huh. there'd be uh, book displays and always nagging them to to buy me a new book. Yeah, pulling on the sleeve. Absolutely. Which and sometimes did ever, did and sometimes didn't. Yeah, I was going to say, did yeah. they ever say no? Uh, probably occasionally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Irvine Library, do you have any memory of what it was actually like to, to take us into that library when you were a girl? It, it, Irvine Library uh, was and is, I think, um, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think it's still in the same building it was in uh, uh -huh. when I was young. And it's, it, it's, it's in the building which is the main council headquarters in Irvine, so right. forgive me if there's anybody from Irvine, I'm from Irvine, so I can say these things, a pretty ugly building. Right. Um, and uh, the so library... Like library. It, it wasn't a sort of old building, right. beautiful library. The, I seem to remember it was kind of rows and rows of steel shells, so there wasn't anything particularly aesthetically uh -huh. uh, attractive about the library, but I just loved being in there. In that space. Surrounded by books and... 
you know, having all of that choice to, to pick from, it was magical. Did your parents support you as a reader? Were they, were they yeah. readers themselves? My, both mum and dad uh, were and are readers, uh, probably not to the same extent that I am, but right. they, they encouraged me to read. Um, one of the things that I always remember as a child, which maybe makes me a bit different from most other children, I didn't like being read to. Um, I, I never really had the patience to listen to somebody reading to me. Maybe it was the sort of early expression of the control freak, I don't know, but I always like to have the, uh, the book in my own hands. So before I went to school, I've got only very vague memories of this, but I always remember trying to sort of work out the words uh, for myself even before I, I started school. So uh -huh. uh, being read to was never something I particularly... Light. You must have been a nightmare at storytelling. I, I, I totally, absolutely. <laughs> Probably so, still am, my mother would tell you, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. No audiobooks for you the, either then? I'm not it? a big fan of audiobooks. I've, for exactly that reason. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've occasionally thought I would, I would like to try. In these moments where I tell myself I'm going to take up exercise and running and things like that, which I never <laughs> get round to doing, um, I tell myself that listening to books... Uh, would be a good way of doing that, but so far, no. I'm not really particularly into Kindles either. There's yes. something about the feel and the smell and the, everything about a book that I really love. I know we're not supposed to be snobby about e-books, but that did make me feel a slight burst of joy in my I'm heart when snobby. you said that. I, 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 it's not a snobbiness, absolutely no, no, not. not at I mean, all. I think whatever know, gets people whatever to gets people reading, yeah. and you know, I can absolutely see why people like reading uh, on a screen. It's yeah. just not really for me. There's a really nice. Uh, over in Sean's bookshop across the road, I'm sure lots of people have seen it. There's a, a Kindle on the wall in the manner of a hunting trophy, and the, the Kindle has been shot. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, I would. <laughs> um, so, all right, so take us um, from, from the Enid Blight into the sort of teenage you. What were those, those consciousness-raising books or the books that first sort of connected with you as a teenager? Because that's a time in your life where you're starting to think about, you know, the, the big themes yeah. of the world. Yeah, so, so I kind of probably graduated from Enid Blyton. I always remember, uh, not when I was a teenager, but uh, sort of older than my sitting under the table at my birthday party uh, time. You know, I loved things like Swallows and Amazons, uh, the Shally Girls books. Uh -huh. I, I consumed all of them. I suppose as I got into my early teens though, you know, I started probably fairly early teens reading uh, Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. That's when I read uh, Lewis Grassic Gibbon, Sunset Song, which I've often said is my favourite book of all time. But we were talking about that earlier mm -hmm. and you said that to me when I asked you and I've not read it. That's shameful. I know, I know, he's, I know. He's, Give me a challenge that I've got to persuade him to... So come on. Can I not just give you a first ministerial diktat and say you've got to read it rather than... I mean, listen, we know they don't always work. <laughs> Very but true. Sell, sell it to me rather than, rather okay, than tell um, me to. Sunset Song is it's just one of these classic novels. So it's got a very strong female character, which when I was in my early teens, I uh, appealed hugely to me. Uh-huh. Um, it's set around the time of the First World War, so I love historical fiction, so it, it really is an insight into uh, that particular time in history and particularly what it was like in that particular time in history in a rural part of Scotland. And for me, growing up in Ayrshire, uh, in the west of Scotland, a fairly urban sort of uh, upbringing, it opened my eyes to a part of Scotland that I had no real 
knowledge of uh, Aberdeenshire. Um, so it was really a window into a moment in history, a window into a part of my own country that I didn't really know much about, uh -huh. and a really strong uh, female character that battles through adversity. And, and the trilogy, of course, is really the story of her life. Right. Um, so uh, hopefully you'll get round to reading it. Right, OK, I'm sold. Yeah, that wasn't that hard. I'm actually quite easy to, to convince, but I, I am sold. That mm -hmm. does sound great. Um, when I asked you about some of the other early books that were really important to you, one that you chose rang a huge bell for mm -hmm. me, um, and that's The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. Mm -hmm. um, do, you remember, do you remember when your first reading of that? I probably read that maybe, I can't remember exactly, but I would be mid-teens, I would think, when yeah. I, I started reading Alice Walker and, and read The Colour Purple, and it's a book that... You know, I still remember the impact it had on me. Again, you know, I was uh, a teenage girl, the sort of emerging feminism in me. It spoke to that. It was also, uh, for those who read Colour Purple know what I'm talking about here, a pretty brutal sort of uh, portrayal of the plight of African-Americans and particularly African-American women. And I've always been... so. For me, apart from enjoyment, books and fiction have always been about learning about uh -huh. parts of the world or periods in history or experiences that I, I don't know directly. And The Colour Purple was a very, very sort of powerful uh, read for me that I can still actually remember, if I, if I think about it, I can still conjure up how that book made me feel. And how was Which that? Which was kind of sad and angry, but also hopeful because there's quite a sort of you know, hopeful, uh, positive uh, vibe around the human spirit in that book and, and the power of friendship and love to overcome, yeah. you know, even the sort of worst injustices of the world. So, yeah. um, and that, that, those kind of themes always appeal to me in books. It's about, you know, how the human spirit uh, battles against and overcomes the worst adversity and how, how individuals develop as human beings. So that's got all of that and more. She writes um, the character, Celie, um, who's one of two sisters who are separated in, this, in, in the novel, The Colour Purple. She writes uh, letters to God um, because she, she's written to her sister. Her sister's never written back. Um, and, and she writes these letters in idiom. The, the, the language is incredibly powerful, isn't it? It's so, so mm -hmm. lyrical yeah. and, and so expressive. And you mm -hmm. feel like you're talking to Celie. Mm -hmm. and, and, she, and she's writing to God. And at that time, when I read the books, I still had a sort of mm. faith that I, I could imagine her feeling like she was connecting to God in some mm. way. Did you have that at that point? Um, no, not really in that way. I mean, I, I suppose even at that age, I was fairly agnostic around religion. Um, and But, but what I, I thought was powerful was whether she was writing to God or the, the ability to connect with somebody outside your own direct experience and, uh -huh. and take comfort and solace from you know, setting down your own feelings and, and having that connection with, with somebody else or something else. Yeah, it's an incredible book. And she was the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize. Absolutely. And, I mean, the book at the time, I mean, everybody who's read it, um, or not everybody who's read it, obviously, but it's such a, a powerful book and it's been such a, a lauded, rightly uh, lauded and celebrated book, but actually it was quite controversial and it had its critics. It's often Still does. banned. I mean, it's often banned. Yeah, and you know there was there were even people who who talked about uh, you know it was an unfair characterisation of, of African American men, and mm -hmm. so you know I suppose the best fiction, the best writing, always sparks controversy. Yeah. Did you like the film? 
Um, I'm not a great fan of uh, watching films of books that I love, so right. yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the film, but I'm always a little bit ambivalent yeah. about films of, of books that, that I love because they never really, in my estimation, they never really quite live up to the magic and the feeling you get from reading the book. Okay, what are the worst offenders then for adaptations? Oh, I don't... I'm just going to come right I'm out not, and say I'm Captain sure, Canelli's Mandolin. Um, I'm not sure I've even seen that, actually. I'm not a great... I'm going to sort of uh, admit something here. I'm not, I'm not a great film person. I mean, I enjoy right. watching films, but I almost... Not, not as a, a hard and fast rule, but I think I probably shy away from going to see films of favourite books because I'm always of the view. And I probably, as a result of that, I've probably missed seeing some absolutely fantastic films. <laughs> but I also always just assume that they'll never quite live up to yeah. the experience of the book. Um, now, without The Colour Purple, um, I mean, there would be no homegoing, and that's another novel that I'd, I'd love to yeah. talk to you about, by, by Yag Yazzie. It came out, when did it, was it two years, three years ago? I then? think I, yeah, it must be about that. I think yeah. I read it last year, or perhaps the tail end of the year before. Yeah, so which is, it's a novel set in um, what will become Ghana, am I right mm -hmm. in saying yeah. that? Mm -hmm. um, and it's about um, slavery, but it's, it kind of turns on the end, it turns on its head the narrative of slavery being a, a white problem and a black problem, and it talks instead about the tribes in what will become Ghana capturing other people from that area um, and working, including uh, with white slave masters mm -hmm. and sending them, um, sending them to America, and it follows the descendants of this, of, of, of two sisters, yeah. two half-sisters. Who got separated. Who got separated. Yeah. Um, over, what, 300 years, something yeah. like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it. So, as Damien said, it, it really does, uh, I suppose, uh, challenge some of the simplicities around mm. the narrative of the slave trade and, and show the complexities, that, you know, that... These stories are, well, slavery was evil, but these stories are, are very rarely kind of simplistic. Good yeah. and evil, there's, there's lots of different layers. But the really clever thing, and I think the really wonderful thing about it is because it follows uh, the descendants of these uh, two sisters who got separated as they were, you know, being, uh, well, one was sold into the slave trade. Um, it, it, it shows really powerfully that something that we think of as historic yeah. still, you know, the the implications and the impact and the consequences of slavery uh, carried on right up until this day. And yeah. you know, some of the racial tensions we see particularly in, in the United States uh, yeah. today. So it, it made the case that what happened all these hundreds of years ago, or in some respects not as long ago as that, you know, still made its presence felt in people's lives in modern times. And the great thing is, is that a read, as a reader, you're aware of everything that's happened to all the ancestors, yeah. to all the characters before. They're not, and I think that's the thing, that one yeah. of the saddest facts of that book is that they're yeah, so they cut off from their own yeah, history. They don't, know. they don't know. They don't know. You know and, and you see them kind of reliving yeah. And, and doing again things that were done to yeah. them. So I, one of the other things that I recall from that book is that the point of no return, this expression that we use all the time, that's at, there was actually a real place mm. in, a, in a slave port and there was a sign and it said the point of no return and it's mm -hmm. at that point that that, that that sister gets sent off and she, right. she never sees her, yeah. her half-sister again. Yeah, I've always been really... Uh, really drawn to books about slavery and the slave trade just because of, you know, I suppose a, a sort of morbid fascination just around the sheer barbarism and, mm. and evil of, of that. I've just read, uh, which is another book I would highly recommend, it's, uh, it's on the man book or shortlist, uh, Washington Black. Right, I've yet uh, to get to that is, one. Which is fantastic, but 
you know, the Underground Railroad, which was out a couple of years ago, they're all, you know, they're all books of a, a type, but they're all incredibly powerful and just shows how strong that theme is uh -huh. today. Yeah, it, th that connects for me with The Mars Room, which is another one of those, uh, one, of the, one of the books that are on the, the Man Booker shortlist, Rachel Kushner's book. Um, you'll have seen it in the shops. It's bright, well, I'm colourblind, but I think it's bright pink. Bright pink. It is bright pink, great. It's bright pink and it's got a swallow on. Um, and it's all about um, a, one woman in, in a prison, uh, a fictional prison in California. Um, and it that book terrified me. I'm not sure it is really. A, well, well, I mean, it's, it's fictional it's, in the sense that she's changed the name. But I actually I had the opportunity to meet her when she was at Edinburgh Book Festival a few weeks ago. Um, and she's done a huge amount of research yeah. into the American uh, criminal justice system and the prison system. Uh, I think she's done prison visiting and yeah. everything. So I, I suspect that the prison is pretty real. But it's a story of uh, a woman who... Uh, she works in a strip club, uh, you know, tough upbringing, abusive upbringing. Uh, and this guy uh, who comes to the strip club starts to stalk her um, in a really, you know, yeah. dreadful way. She's sort of terrorised by this guy. Uh, and she's got a little boy over a period of time. And, and one day, just out of sheer terror, she, she kills him. And she ends up, I think, getting two life sentences. And then it's a story of the horror of the American prison system, just mass incarceration and how people just cease to be human beings. They, you know, are cut off from the outside world. There's no hope, uh, no, no possibility of redemption. They're just complete lost causes. And it's, it's really tragic, but it, it really does make you think of just, just about the, the injustice and the waste of human potential. On that first day when she's, when she's transferred to that yeah. prison, she, she's got two life sentences plus, I think, six years. Yeah. And um, I don't know how that quite works, uh, if it's you know, jailed for forever and a day. But anyway, uh, she, she's, she, she loses her opportunity for parole 37 years in the future because of something she does on that first day and she, and she realises at that moment that she has no, no hope of redemption yeah. and it's terrifying. I wonder how you, reading that as a politician, when you read about something that's so obviously issues-based mm. and it's about, and it's an area that you have, you know, influence in, mm -hmm. um, how, how that affects you as a politician. I mean, these kind of stories and, and that kind of fiction uh, does have an impact and you know, again, one of the things that I think as a politician is very important is to have an insight into experiences that you don't have directly. Mm -hmm. And fiction's a good way of doing that. Now, I should say, while there are challenges and, and issues and problems in our own prison criminal justice system, I think it's a world away from, you know, what happens in Americas. But, you know, I'm a great believer that, you know, apart from in the, the most... You know, extreme egregious of cases, there should always be the hope of redemption and rehabilitation. And the, the criminal justice system, of course, it has uh, a punishment function, and that's got to be the case. But it should also be about trying to rehabilitate people and uh, where possible and give people a second chance at life. And what is so depressing when you read The Mars Room is just how that is completely absent from mm. any notion of criminal justice yeah. in, in the United States. Yeah, it's completely chilling. There yeah. is almost no hope. In fact, it's quite a hard read at points because of that. There's a, there's a moment in it uh, where a, a woman, not, not the main character, but another prisoner, um, she's talking to somebody who has been released, who's you know not a life prisoner. And this character in the book has lost all contact with anybody on, in the outside world. You know, she didn't have much, many family members and she's basically got nobody. Yeah. And she's got 
a photograph of herself from before she was in prison. And she asks the prisoner who's been released if she will take the photograph because she wants to know that something of her will exist and be remembered in the outside world. And that, you know, I had to st stop reading it for a while at that point because yeah. it was so raw and so hard. Yeah, no, it was. Do you cry books? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, often. Yeah. yeah. Not I... as much as I cry at the news sometimes, but I cry. <laughs> The news is a different kind of fiction. <laughs> I, I, I spent half my journey down watching the Prime Minister's statement and, yeah, fiction is probably a good description. We could call it a great work of fiction in just the sense of scale, not necessarily long, in quality. A long, tortured work of fiction, I think. Anyway, let's forget politics for a wee while. I, I'm probably with quite a depressing ending, but anyway, we'll, 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 we'll not go any further with that. Let's, um, let's come a bit closer to home with... Um, uh, a Scottish book um, by, by a Scottish writer who, who I love, um, The Quaker by Liam McIlvanny. Yeah. That was a, cr I mean, I'm not a huge crime fan. So I, 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 I often find too, there's too many dead women and it's too, often the violence is too pornographic and I, 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 I sh sometimes shy away from it. Um, and I know as I'm saying that, you're thinking Val McDermott and all of this, but, but I, I just, but with but this, this novel I picked it up and it just took me to another world. It took me to Glasgow in the, you know, in the 19... 1970s and it was mm. it was incredible mm -hmm. it was amazing and the central character det the the detective the gay detective mm -hmm. I mean who I did did not see that yeah. coming it's no I, I I read it uh, fairly recently and I think the thing I love most about it was the way in which it brings Glasgow to life and, yeah. and not Glasgow today but Glasgow you know three decades ago and it does that incredibly cleverly it's got a really compelling uh, central character um, and the story's, I think, expertly done. I'm always particularly uh, careful when talking about crime fiction for some reason not to give the plot yes. of novels away. I think uh, that's a particularly bad thing to do when it's a crime novel, but it's I got that subtle warning, fantastic. by the way. <laughs> it's a fantastic read. And I was, when I was growing up, a, a writer I, you know, idolised was Liam's father, Willie McIlvanny. Um, and, you know, he really does, uh, he has inherited that you know, writing talent, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, well, I, I think for me, it, it was interesting that this character comes from the Highlands, which mm -hmm. growing up at, you know, near Motherwell, to me, was, you know, sort of remote, and I always thought was, you know, sort of green and sylvan and picturesque and everything there was all, was all lovely. This character talks about how his parents and grandparents left the Highlands for Glasgow, which they thought of as the dear green place, mm -hmm. because to them, the Highlands were all quarries, yeah. dangerous, mm -hmm. dangerous jobs, and it was, it was it, and, and quite brutal. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd never, I never thought about, you know, Glasgow as a gentle place. Yeah. Um, and that, that was quite surprising. I think going back to Sunset Song, that's, that, that's something else that my eyes were open to. I think when you grow up in the central belt of Scotland, you think of places uh, to the north, the Highlands, probably, you know, parts of the south of the country as rural idols and, yeah. you know, beautiful parts of the country. But uh, you're right in terms of, of Quaker, but Sunset Song as well, open your eyes to, you know, how rough and tough and difficult a way of life it often is yeah. and how people in these parts of the country often look to the cities and the, the major towns as, you know, where it's, it's easier to be. So it's all about deepening the understanding. It definitely did, definitely did that for me. Mm -hmm. There's also a really funny line in it where one of the characters is coming back. It resonated with me coming back on the train. He's a, he's a bank robber. He comes back and he says that, you know, no, nobody ever welcomes you back to Glasgow where it's always 1953. Um, and and it's, a, it's a brilliant moment. Mm -hmm. He's a good character. And, of course, the baddie is based on Bible John. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I remembered my granny telling me those stories when I was growing up. I went to my first concert at the Barrowlands and she was like, Bible John. I was like, who? What? You know? Um, was, that, was that something, did you, you know that story from you growing up in Irvine? Uh, definitely, yeah. I mean, these were the kind of, you know, apocryphal stories of, of Glasgow. I mean, I grew up in, as you say, Irvine, Glasgow was a big metropolis. I, yeah. from a very, very young age, I had it in my head that I wanted to go to Glasgow University. I wanted to, to go and live in Glasgow. And there was always around my family, which would have considered itself less urban and slightly more rural than that. There was always these kind of scary stories about what it would mean to live in Glasgow. So the Bible John story was certainly one yeah. I knew from a young age. Yeah. Um, so given this early love of books and finding an emotional connection with them as a, as a teenager, which obviously spoke to you know, a sense of injustice. You went on to do law, but, but why not English? Was there a, was there a, was there a competition there for you? Um, not really, I suppose. I always took the view that I could read books anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have to go and study literature or English. Uh, I could do that anyway and, and study something else. And I'd always, um, again, I, I kind of struggled to explain this because I, I had decided I wanted to be a lawyer before probably I even knew what that was. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, so I had, I, you might be able to tell, I had a, a kind of pretty dogged determination when I was me. It wasn't, it was quite quiet and shy dogged determination, but I always had got ideas into my head and wanted, so I'd, I'd always wanted to go and study law. Um, the older I got, I suppose that did get more uh, connected to this idea of challenging injustice and wanting to be uh, on, on the side of the, social justice crusader mm -hmm. um, and I always sort of view well books are always there I don't have to go and study you them. don't have to go and study them um, yeah nothing ruins loving books like doing an English literature degree um, <laughs> I couldn't read for about two years after mine um, but you know you, you were you were there at, at university and at that point in your in your academic career how political were you by the time you got to university oh very I mean I'd already joined the SNP before I, I got to university uh -huh. and uh, so I was already active in politics by then and going to university really just, well, both uh, intensified and accelerated that. So I got involved in student politics, which, you know, for all students at the time you're involved yeah. in student politics, it's the most important thing of course in is. the world. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just got more and more involved in, in the SNP through that. So I was very political. And your parents were, you were the first in your family to go to university, yeah. mm -hmm. so, and they supported you with your reading, and obviously they supported you to go to university too, but what, what was that like for you being the first to go? How did you feel getting into this new, this new world, this new place? It was, I suppose, although I was the first in my family to go to university, uh -huh. there was never, I never... I don't remember ever getting any sense from my mum and dad that this was not something for the likes of me to do. They always uh -huh. encouraged me. So I don't suppose at the time I was constantly worrying about the fact that I was the first to do it. But I remember I went to Glasgow University to study law and, you know, there were lots and lots of... Uh, privately educated people yeah. in my classes around me. And I remember finding the first few months of being at university really difficult. Um, and that was in when I started, because I just felt that everybody around, not everybody around me, but a lot of the people around me were more confident um, and came from different backgrounds. And therefore, in my sort of young mind, that meant they were better than me and cleverer than me and would mm -hmm. you know, cope with university life much better than me. So for the first 
few months, I probably wasn't sure whether I could hack it. And it was actually the, the Christmas exams was when it turned for me because I did the Christmas exams. It was stressful. I was, you know, up to, to high do about them, but did reasonably well and did as well, if not slightly better than a lot of the ones I'd been really intimidated by. Yeah. So that was the moment where I started to think, okay, maybe maybe I can do this. Yeah, maybe I can stay yeah. on. But yeah. it's important, you know, for and I say this a lot, and without being overly political here, you know, I would never have gone to university, um, not because mum and dad wouldn't have wanted me to. I would never have gone to university if there had been, you know, £9,000 a year tuition fees. Um, and I've, one of the things I feel very, very strongly about, like really passionately about, is I had that opportunity. And so much that followed in my life flowed from that opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, as a politician, I've got no right to take that away from anybody else. And it's why I believe so strongly in the right to free education. Yeah, I was, I was the, I, I kind of was at the cusp of that. I remember sort of a couple of years where, where it was free. Did you try to tell me you're younger than me? Oh, well, <laughs> su really subtly. Do, does anybody uh, here believe that? No. <laughs> that is not an edict, by the way, you have for free choice. Um, <laughs> no, but, I, and, and I remember thinking, oh God, this has suddenly got really, really, really expensive mm. um, and being really scared about graduating into, graduating into a huge amount of debt. Um, didn't put me off, but I think if I was thinking about it at the beginning, I definitely I, I, would have thought I, twice. I think it does have the potential to put people off. And, and don't get me wrong, I think uh, there is more to supporting uh, working class kids to go to university than free tuition. We've got yeah. to, you know, enable people to get over that kind of feeling I had and, you know, have the right support in place. And we've still got work to do around equal access, but it would be disastrous, in my view, to all of that to suddenly saddle people either with the the need to do that up front or be saddled with debt at the end of it. So, so given, given your love of books and that passionate claim that you've just made, why is it that libraries are closing in Scotland? Well, we've done a lot to support libraries in Scotland. We've got a library strategy that looks at how we better support libraries. Local authorities have the principal responsibility. Uh, we've just published a new strategy where we're putting more investment into supporting school libraries. Mm. Uh, so I'm a passionate supporter and you know, would say to any local authority that a library is one of the things that you should be trying to protect. Times are tough. I'm not suggesting that they aren't, but mm. we've got to protect uh, what matters most. Mm. We're also doing other things around getting books into the hands of young people. So one of the other government policies I'm really proud of is the baby box where every newborn baby gets a baby box with lots of essentials so that you know it's the symbolism of that that every baby starts on an equal basis but in the baby box are books yeah uh, we have the book bug uh, project which gives kids from birth to five free books at certain stages of their lives so uh, I've started the First Minister's Reading Challenge. It's all about just trying to encourage young people as much as possible to mm. see reading as a normal part of their development. Yeah, I mean, I think that I was working hard at the community in New York Hill, where I'm from, to mm. fight to save that local library and to stop it being a political issue and to actually talk about reading as not a luxury, mm -hmm. um, but actually an engine of social mobility. Um, and I think that that was, you know, that's an argument that I hear being made, mm -hmm. being made more and more. And yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a pleasure. It doesn't mean that it's dispensable, mm -hmm. you know. I also think we've got to challenge the narrative that a lot of people indulge in that, um, you know, reading is a really expensive thing to do. 
Now, don't get me wrong, if you've got no money, then the relative expense of different uh, forms of entertainment is an academic debate. But, yeah. you know, reading relative to going to the pictures, for example, is, you know, buying a book relative to that is not. So I think we've got to challenge this notion uh, amongst young people that reading is, is only for, you know, people who can afford it and, yeah. and normalise the idea of having books and encourage people to use libraries as well. You know, yeah. it's the trend in society because of the internet and Kindles is away from these kind of things. And I think the more we can encourage young people to, to see libraries as, as places to go, the mm -hmm. more we'll be able to protect these uh, precious assets for the future because that's what they are. Uh, let's talk about one of the one of the few political choices that, that you made when I asked you White Houses. It's that's you know the White House, and it's the story. Well, do you want to say what it is? Uh, White Houses is um, I wouldn't say it's hugely political. It's it's the story. Well, it's a, it's a fictional account of uh, the the alleged love affair between Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, a journalist that went to work in the White House when. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president at uh, Lorena Hickok um, and they allegedly were uh, were lovers and it's just a beautiful story about that relationship how it develops what both of them get from it and uh, you know I just it, and it's beautifully it's by uh, Amy Bloom and it's just absolutely beautifully written yeah I think one of the things that's interesting about Amy is she works as a psychotherapist as, as well know. yeah she does she works as a psychotherapist and I think that she, what she knows about relationships she brings all yeah. that tenderness and all that spikiness mm -hmm. to that relationship because you hear you have Eleanor Roosevelt who's you know the the first lady and Lorena Hickok who is you know as, as she says herself white trash um, you know, uh, from, from the South um, as a photographer, mm. and they're having this affair on, under, um, under the noses of, of Franklin. Now, he was an interesting character because um, I actually liked him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what did you think of him? Um, of course, I wasn't alive when he was president. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I think he was... I'm just about to start... I don't read much non-fiction, but I'm just about to start a book um, by... Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who wrote uh, Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln. She'd written biographies of uh, both of the Roosevelt's and Abraham Lincoln. It's, it's a book uh, which looks at Lincoln, the Roosevelt's, and uh, I think Lyndon Johnson, um, and looks at their leadership traits. So uh -huh. I think Roosevelt was, by all accounts, he wasn't a particularly nice human being, mm. um, and I you know, didn't uh, treat Eleanor particularly well. Although didn't treat very many the impression very I took well. from White House, he's actually, is that he probably knew all about the relationship between her and, and Lorena Hickok. Uh, but as a president, as a leader, he was visionary and you know, inspirational and you know, how he uh, kind of lifted America uh, out of uh, the, the situation it faced at the time is, is pretty inspirational, I think. Yeah, no, it is. It's a fantastic book. It's also incredibly short. So if you're looking for something to yes. read in a, mm -hmm. in a day, it's delightful. Um, and it's, she's making it into a mini-series as well. Oh, really? Yeah, she's, write, she's writing the mini-series yeah, just uh -huh. now, which is very cool. Mm -hmm. uh, we are going to open up to questions in a little bit, so start to, start to have a think about your, your bookish-related questions. Um, you said there that you don't read much non-fiction. Why is that? Is it just because well, you're too I, busy I, with novels? As, or is <laughs> as, well, firstly, as, as First Minister, I read plenty of non-fiction, uh, just not yeah. books. <laughs> 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 so my, my, average, my average day... Um, and night and weekends involve me wading through piles of paper, like yeah. literally uh, this high. So um, I, I just take the view that 
reading uh, for pleasure for me is about trying to escape from that and fiction is a, a better way of doing it. That said, I've just finished a non-fiction book which uh, is a scary read. It's the, the Bob Woodward Trump book, oh, right. um, which don't read it if you don't want to be kept awake worrying <laughs> at night about the future of the world. Um, and I'm about to start this other one, so that would be two non-fiction books in a row. Not going to read the Stormy Daniels? Possibly not. <laughs> I feel like we've all read enough of that book yeah. already mm -hmm. to last me a lifetime. I can't think about mushrooms again. Um, <laughs> it's just, I have to say. Um, so you're doing all this reading, and do you ever get any time for writing? Do you write a diary at all? Um, I don't write a diary, or I haven't written a diary as... Uh, as religiously or as uh, systematically as I wish I had right. over the past 10 years. Uh, but I have started. Um, so earlier this year, I decided to try and, and do that. So I've, I, I wouldn't say I've managed to do it every single day, but I've kept pretty much a, a, a sort of fairly comprehensive diary over the last, uh, most of this year. So. And that noise you can hear is publishers tripping over themselves outside <laughs> <laughs> to come and get it. Would you, would you ever publish it? Uh, not immediately, no, um, but one day, possibly, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what about writing fiction? I would, I would love, love, love more than most other things to think that I had a novel in me. I, I'm, I'm genuinely not sure that I do. I think right. I'm in awe of people who write fiction. Um, I just think it is the most wonderful thing to create you know, worlds uh, that people like me can lose ourselves in. Uh, it's a really, really special thing. I'm, I'm not sure I've got it in me, but that's not to say I won't have a go one day. Right. I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for my first novel. Okay. Whereas I've got your first novel in the car um, <laughs> about to No to pressure. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to gloss over that fact um, really quickly. Um, so uh, you're not going to you're not going to write a novel. You are you are writing your diaries. You might publish them. You might come to Wigtown and talk about them at some point in the future. At some point. Um, and you really do enjoy interviewing writers. It's great. If you haven't watched um, the First Minister, um, I, I recommend that you look on the Edinburgh Festival, uh, the Book Festival website, and watch her basically fangirling over Val McDermott and Ali Smith and Chimamanda. It's it's fantastic to see. What was it like for you to meet your idols? It's, it's great. So once a year at the Edinburgh Book Festival, for the last few years, I've had the opportunity pretty much to pick a writer and have nice. the Edinburgh Book Festival see if they're willing to come and be interviewed by me. And it is, I, mean, I was saying to, to Damien before we came on stage, you know, writers are kind of my rock stars. I, I get excited around writers the way some people do around, you know, pop stars and other celebrities. So to have the opportunity to, like this, talk to some of my favourite writers is just, you know, fantastic. And uh, I think I've done four uh, years in a row now. So Val McDermott, Jackie Kay. Yes, Jackie. Uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the Nigerian writer who's just wonderful. And then this summer I got to... Uh, interview Ali Smith, who is one of, in, in my humble opinion, is probably the greatest living Scottish uh, writer, female Scottish writer, um, at this. <laughs> I wasn't offended. <laughs> all at right. this moment, <laughs> she's wonderful, and she it, is it was just great. And she, I mean, she had the audience in the palm of her hand. Just li you could listen to her for hours. What is it you love about her so much? Um, I, I just love. Her writing is sublime. So she's talking about this as well. She and she would say Muriel Spark was 
one of her great inspirations. If yeah. anybody loves Muriel Spark, you will love Ali Smith. There's yeah. a lot of similarity in, in the writing, but she's so innovative about how she uses the, the novel form as well as the, the content of her stories. And mm. the seasonal quartet that she, she's halfway through now, um, it, it's pretty much as close to kind of real-time fiction as you'll get. You yeah. know, she's basically chronicling uh, the times we're living through right now in these four novels. Autumn, of course, was described as the first post-Brexit novel. And, yeah, I think it's much more than that, but it really does describe the, the kind of feeling in the country, the, the sense of division yeah. and everything uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, probably better than anything I've read fiction or non-fiction since. Mm. And did you ask her where she's up to with the next one? Is she done? I, I was a bit worrying, actually, because I have uh, pre-ordered her next one, which is spring, and I was telling her this uh, at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, and it's due, I think I've got a date for delivery, which is so sometime in March next year, and she said, all oh, right, I haven't started writing it yet. <laughs> I'm, right, okay, that's about, you better go on with it. What are you doing sitting here talking to me? Where are you going, but right? Then she, 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 I mean, she told me that um, Lewis Gassett Gibbon uh, wrote Sunset Song in uh, six weeks, I think she said, mm. which is just mind-blowing. And some of Sparks' best novels uh, were written in a really... I think the Prime Minister Jean Brodie was written in a matter of weeks. So, mm. you know, the best writers, no doubt, have the ability to, to do that. What's your favourite Spark? Um, you're rereading them, aren't you? I'm, I'm, I'm getting slowly but surely. I decided, given that this is her centenary year, to, to reread them. I'd read them when I was a student. and So I'm doing them in order. Um, and I've, I don't think I'm quite halfway through yet. But my favourite... I think is the driver's seat um, because all these years, decades on from when I first read it, I still don't really understand it. Um, right. And so it's a kind of book that I think you you will never tire of pouring over because you just are desperately trying to work out what she was trying what to say. What she was trying to say, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I think we'll take some questions now uh, from people in the audience. We've got two roving microphones, so if you can put your hand up and wait till the microphone gets to you before you start speaking, that would be great. And there's somebody over here on the right. You know, there's the Muriel Spark event happening, I think, right now, pretty much. Alan Taylor's doing it. Oh, you wow. can maybe duck in and catch the end I'd of love it. to, actually, yeah. <laughs> OK, thanks, uh, thanks for that, Damien. Thank you, uh, First okay. Minister. Um, Given the, the subject matter, Nicola, and given, and given the job that you do, uh, I couldn't help but think about Jan Martel, the author of The, the Life of Pi, uh, who once in his life sent two books a week to then-Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Now, his point, his point wasn't that he was, it was OK to tell people what to read, indeed to read anything at all. But his view was that if we deign to, to rule the world, to try and change the world, we should first of all try to understand the world that we're, we're actually going to change, which is something that you're, you're obviously doing. So my question to you really is, I'm looking for a bit of guidance. Um, what books should we be sending? And which world leaders should you be sending them to? <laughs> I'd sort of... Uh... <coughs> Yeah, there's journalists in the room. I've got to be a wee bit careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> what I say here is, Lady Bird and Trump was is not the words that I'm going to, to have in, in one sentence. Can I say, I, I absolutely agree with 
with that uh, proposition. I, if, if I could make one thing compulsory for politicians and leaders across the world, it would be to read and to read fiction because, you know, the way in which it broadens your understanding of the world, deepens your understanding of the world, uh, broadens and changes your perspective, uh, allows you insights into experiences you don't have directly, that is invaluable to anybody who's in a position of leadership. So I, I absolutely agree with that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I love making book recommendations. I'm not a great one for saying you must read this. For me, it's whatever it is you enjoy, whatever inspires you, whatever opens your mind, the most important thing uh, is is to read um, and you know I would uh, for uh, any leader I mean there's just such a a choice uh, out there but maybe given it is a centenary year maybe I'll I'll send a complete work uh, works of Muriel Spark to both the Prime Minister and the President of the United States. <laughs> um. I think it's ironic that Jeremy Corbyn's favourite book is Things Fall Apart. <laughs> Just going to say that. Appropriate. <laughs> it's very, very appropriate. Um, other, there was another hand um, up over here somewhere, or was it over here? I can't see. Sorry. So you are bright. Okay. No, you've not got any more credit. Well, are you? Yes, yeah, there you are. Yeah. I, there was a lady at the back, and it looked like you were about to win something in an auction. You were sort of scratching your nose there. Gentleman here. I just wonder whether, in fact, you know, we've been talking about novels and things like that, but uh, in reading, oh, sorry, in reading uh, historical findings, someone like, Muriel, like um, Agnes Muir Mackenzie, who brought out the Arbroath Manifesto into the general public, and uh, it became the manifesto more or less for the, in, in the emerging. Uh, a state in America, the whole thing, I mean, it was a letter to the Pope saying, uh, oh. from, from a, I suppose, mainly aristocracy in Scotland, saying, you know, England is not giving us a good deal here, mm. <laughs> uh, and can we have some intervention? You know, in historical terms, I think that's quite, uh, quite interesting. She can I just ask you what your question is? I was is? at Bannockburn, which was for her nieces. Right, um, before we go all the way back to Bannockburn, yeah. Um, can I just ask you what your question is? Well, the question is, you know, it, it, uh, I mean, I, you know, having done national service, I've read everything in the world. <laughs> That's what national service is for. Um, but I think sometimes historical uh, findings uh -huh. are more important and bringing out that particular document at a particular time helps so no, so the, I mean, You're talking started, about the power of non-fiction. national the Scottish okay. Nash Party in some ways. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, no. I love reading, you know, old, old dog, whether it's letters or speeches. Uh, you know, I said earlier I don't read an awful lot of non-fiction, but I love, you know, reading uh, speeches. So, you know, whether you're talking about the Declaration of Our Broth or the Gettysburg Address, the, the ability of words written in particular times, uh, in particular circumstances, to resonate and inspire today, I think is really important. So I would absolutely yes. agree with you. Have you seen the? Have you or have you picked up yet the letters to Obama book? I, I've got it. I've not read it, but I've, I've got it's it. It's so lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so. I mean, the, the uh -huh. time that he took to read and respond to to, to those people yeah, and the, th the things they told him, I was so. But surprised. it's a really important thing, and it's you know I I, I kind of do it almost without trying to do it because of email. So I, I still you know get my own email that's sent to my my Scottish Parliament email. Uh, but Obama had this thing where every day, at the end of every day, he asked his uh, staff to give him uh, 
a selection of the letters that had been sent. So I think he, he had a, a thing where he re read 10 letters and personally replied to them every day. And yeah. his uh, view, which I would absolutely agree with, is that that gave him in, an insight into the things that were troubling people and, and provoking people to write to him. So, you know, again, that's something that every leader should do and as I say because of email now you kind of do it whether you want to or not sometimes but it's <laughs> it's an invaluable way of understanding the things that are on the most on the minds of the public which are the things that should be most on the minds of most leaders. And what are those what are the things that people are emailing you about just now they're worried about? Uh, people right now well people at any time will will write to politicians and to people like me about things that are uh, relevant in their own lives that often have public policy implications, whether that's their experience on the National Health Service, uh, good or bad. Mm -hmm. uh, welfare right now is a big thing. In my role as a constituency MSP, the, the, the issues people are dealing with through the quite substantial changes to, to the welfare system. As you would expect right now, there's a lot of anxiety uh, through the letters I will get about Brexit and about what lies ahead for the country with a, a whole mix of different views about what we should do in response to that. But, you know, being able to read a selection of what people are writing to you about is, you know, I would say an essential way of having an understanding of what people are thinking and, and being concerned about. Can I, can I ask you, has anyone ever written to you who was, was pro-Brexit, who has put an argument in such a way where their, their feelings or their fears or their thoughts have resonated or connected with you and maybe hadn't been just because it was written down? Of course. I mean, I, I try. I, I'm a politician. I've got very strong uh, views and opinions on things. And in a democracy, that's, that's not a bad thing. I, I try. I, and, you know, believe me, I do try. I don't always succeed. Uh, but I try not to be close-minded to alternative points of view on anything. So yeah. if people write to me, as they do, saying, here's why I supported Brexit, or here's why I, I oppose independence for Scotland, mm. I always make an effort to understand that and see very few issues, even the ones we feel most strongly about, are absolutely black and white. There are shades of grey and everything, and it's really important to listen to and try to develop an understanding of the alternative point of view mm. to the one you hold. And, you know, people who voted for Brexit and people who voted against Scotland being independent, you know, their views and their motivations for that, uh, in most cases, are as legitimate as my motivations mm. for voting the other way. And I think in the world we live in today, and politicians like me have got a big, big responsibility here, and are not always living up to those responsibilities. I think in the world we live in today, which is often very polarised social media, it polarises people. Mm -hmm. We've got an obligation, I think, to try as hard as we can to find as much common ground uh, between the, the opposing opinions. We won't always succeed in that, but I think we owe it to everybody to kind of redouble our efforts to try to do that. And fiction is one of the best ways of doing it, isn't it? Fiction, more than anything else, can help you understand different points of view and, and points of view and experiences that are wildly different to your own. Yeah. And, yeah, it's not only a good way of doing that, it's also a very enjoyable way of doing that. So it's one of the many reasons I recommend it. OK. Other questions for the First Minister from a gentleman here? Oh, sorry. Yes, you first. Um, hi. As a fellow avid reader... I was wondering if you ever do the really bad thing maybe that I do when you go in people's houses and you see if the bookcase is bigger than the telly. 
<laughs> and whether you should trust them or not. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> I do. I, I'm fascinated by other people's bookcases. Yes. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm on social media and see pictures of bookcases, I'm, I'm immediately drawn and I'm like that going in. So apologies if I'm ever in your house and I disappear into other rooms to find out what books you're reading. But um, yeah, I, I try not to judge people on their choice of books or whether they've got books or not. People have different... Uh, and people, particularly these days, because so many people read on Kindle, um, you know, the, the lack of books in somebody's house doesn't mean they don't mm. read. Uh, but I, as I said earlier on about libraries, I love being surrounded by books. So uh, my house is full of, of books, uh, increasingly to the irritation of my husband, I think, who's starting to worry about where they're, they're going to go next. <laughs> Is he a reader as well? Uh, not uh, as much as he should be, and I would like him to be. <laughs> You're about to sort of delve into the, probably the single biggest bone of contention between me and my husband. Really? Yeah. So does he just, is he just like, oh, shut he's, up about Peter book? is, he, he's more creative, so Peter's more into, you know, art and uh, he loves gardening. He's more of a hands-on sort of doing. Uh, uh -huh. So, you know, he. I always try to encourage him to read more, but I, I'm not as successful as I would like to be. So if any of you see him, meet him, run into him, want to email him, <laughs> please feel free and help me pressure him into being more of a reader. So you should get him Penelope Lively a year in the garden. It's a good, yeah, it's a a good, good idea, way in. So yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Like, I think you know. the more I try to persuade him, persuade being perhaps not the best and most accurate words here, the more I try to harangue him, the uh, more I try to harangue him, I think the more determined he gets that he's not going to give in. Yeah. So. But, we'll you know, we'll it's come, his loss. It is his loss. Yeah. We'll, we'll, come up, we'll come up with a few suggestions. We'll okay. workshop it today and see what we can find. And there was a gentleman here with a question. Yes, the microphone, microphone is coming to you. Just here? Good afternoon. First of all, um, I think it's very admirable that you're setting such a good example by, despite all the demands on your time, actually being such an avid reader yourself, rather than just saying, I wish I had more time to read, so well done for that. Um, I appreciate that, uh, like me, you're not a great film buff, but how about the theatre? We've not spoken about the theatre this afternoon. Are there any great plays that you've come across that you've had the opportunity to see at any point in your life that have moved you in a similar way to the way some of the novels have moved you? That's a very good question, and actually, strangely, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever really consciously thought about this until you're asking me that question there, that I don't have the same aversion to seeing books I like on the stage uh, as I do to seeing them on the film. So I remember, it might have been at the Edinburgh Festival uh, years ago, going to see a, a production of Sunset Song, which I, oh, yeah. I loved. I, at this year's uh, Edinburgh Festival, uh, it was part of the book festival, they put the the, the one play that Muriel Spark wrote, Doctors of Philosophy, they did a, a, a rehearsed reading of it, which was fantastic, and I'd love to, to see that. So uh, I'm trying to think of other, uh, other plays that I would, uh, of books that I've read, which are not immediately coming to mind, but did, yeah. Did you see The Trick is to Keep Breathing with Siobhan Redmond? The no. Janice Gallagher, I missed that. Right, I, I missed it too. So. Gutted still. But I think it's a good point, and I don't know why, but I don't have the same aversion to... <laughs> to stage productions as I do to films. Probably, probably, yeah. But I should say, I, although I, I do try to read as much as I can, um, I do still wish I had more time to read, so I definitely uh, 
I agree with that. That's the wish of every single person sitting in this room, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we're, we're just about out of time, so I think we've got one more question. Yeah. Just uh, wondered, in the light of your busy uh, life, how much time you get to read a week? What's your kind of read reading pattern for, for pleasure? Uh, it's a good question. Um, so I try to read every night before I go to sleep, um, even if it's only no matter how late it is or early the next morning it might be sometimes, even if it's only 10, 15, 20 minutes, I, I, I like falling asleep thinking about the book I'm reading rather than falling asleep thinking about all the, the things that have been worrying me during the day. Um, so I, I try to do that. Uh, and m most nights I will, I will manage that. Um, and at weekends, so Saturday night's a favourite time for me to, to read because I can you know, maybe get longer to, to read a couple of hours on a, a Saturday night while Peter's in the kitchen making the dinner. Um, <laughs> so that, that tends to be my, my sort of reading pattern. I don't get a lot of time to read, but I, I try to make the most of the time I do get. And I don't know, I think when you don't have a lot of time, you end up being more careful with how you use the time you do have. So I find myself these days hardly watching any television because if I've got a spare half an hour I'd rather pick up a book than watch the television so um, it's amazing how much you can get through when you're just if you do it regularly even if it's fairly short periods of time. Please join me in thanking the First Minister for her time today. <laughs> thank you all for being here and thank you to the organisers as well.